Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. This is half an hour of science, your favourite science with, um, you know, your favourite radio scientists. My name is Claire and with me this week we have Chris and we have Stu. Hello to the both of you. Hi Claire. Hello. Hello, hello. 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 Um, it's good to be back. I have had COVID over the last couple of weeks so it is nice to see you both again um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what what stories you've got for us this week. Stu, what have you what are you what are you going to tell me about this week? Is it something to do with COVID? Well, as a matter of fact, Aww. it is, Claire. <laughs> Strangely enough, uh, just in the last week, literally in the last week, uh, there's been two papers published in uh, the big science journal Science about uh, the origins of COVID and they were looking at um, when did it cross over, mm. where did it cross over into humans from the uh, animal reservoir of virus, which was apparently present at the time. And they've got some pretty conclusive results and I'll sort of be talking about, well, a little bit about how they, how they came to these conclusions, which is, you know, it's, it's some good science. Interesting. So they were both published in the same issue of Science um, just in the last week. Uh, And, yeah, they've kind of nailed down or pinned down where it came from animals into people and and, uh, how it did that in in some ways. Um, But they haven't really looked into how it got into the animals, but it kind of... What they have found is suggesting... Um, that it was that it was around in animals quite a lot before right. it made the jump. So interesting, fascinating research. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing more about it and how, um, yeah, what what we can learn to uh, mitigate the chance of it happening again. And Chris, what do you have for us? Is it is it COVID related as well? I mean, you know, I literally have COVID uh, on the brain. So unfortunately, no, or unfortunately, or unfortunately <laughs> no. But um, look, you did you did fall asleep, Claire, and wake up in the future where. Robots are intelligent and come to do everything. Hang um, on, is this a follow-up to Stu's robot story? I was I was talking so, oh, a few weeks ago now about um, you know the the future of robots and robots making art That's and right, all that yes. sort of stuff. But I think the story you've got, Chris, is more of a uh, an AI story. Um, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it is about. Um, well, not so much AI, but also about sentience and consciousness. You probably saw in the news, this was actually back in June, that an engineer at Google, a software engineer, uh, released the news that he believed one of their programs was sentient. And he's since been fired. But, uh, look, I just wanted to go through that because it's kind of a big thing. And see so what it tells us about, I suppose, how we test something is consciousness and about theories of consciousness. And I'm going to work in perhaps a little bit of a quantum Ooh. theory consciousness into that as well. But because, I mean, it is a huge, it is a huge area, obviously, philosophically, scientifically. 
you know, we don't have a very long show. We can't cover all of consciousness no. research and things. And but so I'm just going to touch on it very lightly. Um, but it's interesting and worth talking about. Cool. Well, that's um, that's fascinating. And if there are any um, sentient AI out there listening um, who have some um, thoughts, emotions, opinions on on our show, uh, please get in touch with us at lostinsightgmail.com. Awesome. Excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing about our uh, new sentient AI robot friends. Um, and also, yeah, a bit more um, about COVID because, you know... <laughs> certainly hasn't been far from my mind recently. So on with the show. Now, since the beginning of the global SARS-CoV-2 pandemic at the end of 2019, one of the most pressing scientific questions was how the novel coronavirus jumped to the human population. Now, epidemiologists have been warning for decades that a pandemic just like this was not only likely, but many other scientists have been working hard to try and find ways to combat it when it did come. And this is one of the reasons vaccines were developed so quickly as research has been looking at various models of developing rapid vaccines based on similar features among coronaviruses long before this one hit. But the sudden appearance of a new pathogen gave rise to numerous theories, regardless of the long history of warnings and the long history of research. But these kind of investigations take time, and yes, they require more research. So access to data from the early epicentre of the pandemic in China was essential for this research to take place. And in the last month... Two papers have been published in Science, uh, in the journal Science, that shed a lot of light on the mystery of the origin of the, the novel coronavirus that caused this pandemic. So, first of all, the first paper was published on the 26th of July from a team of researchers primarily based at the University of Arizona. And the paper is pretty unambiguously titled the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market in Wuhan was the early epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So I don't think there's any doubt from that title what their conclusions are regarding where the origin of the virus in humans came about. And they, look, they double and triple check their information to make sure they were not biased in any way. So this hypothesis was obviously one of the very early ideas about the source of the initial infections. So it's not really all that surprising to find conclusive evidence in the favour of that hypothesis. So the authors found that species of mammals that are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, so animals that can contract this virus, were commonly sold in the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market in Wuhan. And they were sold as live animals. They also sold meat of some of those animals. And they also found environmental samples from the market itself, uh, just from the environment in the market, showed genetic evidence of the presence of the virus in the market. So they're not making any claims in this paper about how the animals were infected, but their analysis of human cases of COVID-19 showed that out of 177 early cases in humans, 
155 were closely associated with the market. So this is basically the first 150 cases in humans who went to hospital were closely associated with the market. So that's a pretty mm. strong connection. Um, I, I saw a bit about this paper and I understand that they, they tried different scenarios as well to test the notion of whether it could have been um, the market instead of super spreader event, like someone visiting the market and then pass it on there. But the, the chances seem to be very unlikely from them, the modelling they did and the fact that there were different strains there present in the market as well, it seems. Yeah, they did a whole lot of different statistical modelling. Um, but they, for early on, they found that some, some people who were admitted to hospital didn't, didn't shop at the market and, and didn't work in the market. So they were wondering how they got infected. But it turned out when they looked through their hospital records that they all lived really close uh-huh. to the market. So they came in contact with people who were in contact with the market as well. You know, basically everyone had some link to that location um, and it wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't just a super spreader thing. They, they basically say in their paper that cases from December 2019 were like a bullseye around the market when they plotted them out on a, on a, on a map of, of cases. And later cases after December 2019 spread in urban areas of highest density, which is as in highest population density which is also a pattern that's continued as the pandemic spread out of Wuhan as well. Um, They also checked their hypothesis that the market was the epicentre. They deleted cases randomly from their data. So they had all of their data and they'd mapped it all out and they randomly deleted some of the cases until they'd eliminated two-thirds of the cases that they'd recorded. So even when they only had one-third of those cases, they still had that cluster directly linked to the Wuhan market. So they, they got that same distribution, um, which is which is very strong evidence that that is the, the source. Um, they also noted in their paper that their cases were based on hospital admissions. So if they'd gone around, you know, door knocking around the, 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 the market uh, and asking people if they felt ill, it probably would have given them some sort of bias because they were only checking local areas. But they're actually looking at hospital admissions of patients and then they backtracked and said where are they from and where do they live and where do they work and they found that that was the concentration um they also stated in their paper that all other explanations for the origin of the virus in humans are extremely unlikely and that's their terminology there the other paper which is very illuminating is a genetic study of viral evolution which was published in the same issue of science this is called the molecular epidemiology of multiple zoonotic origins of SARS-CoV-2 so it's a completely different team of researchers based mainly in California and this paper shows that the movement of the virus happened on more than one occasion in the Huanan market in Wuhan This is based on analysis of two separate strains of the virus isolated from the market and from patients infected in Wuhan early on in the pandemic. The so-called A and B strains showed significant enough genetic variation that it was highly unlikely that one was derived directly from the other. Or as they said, one of the strains would have had to effectively stop evolving for that hypothesis to work. So basically what they're saying is that they're, they're so different, these two strains, that they didn't come... One person got that 
A strain and then passed it on to another person and it turned into the B strain. They were they were introduced from separate sources into right. uh, human patients. So what that means is that it's very likely that the virus jumped from more than one animal into more than one human in the market. And this suggests that variations of the virus were widespread in the wildlife being sold in the market. So there was multiple species being sold in that market and they probably had multiple strains of the virus and these have been recorded and analyzed from human patients as well and they're not you know they're not directly related so i mean the common theory seems to be that the the reservoir the main reservoir for these coronaviruses is in bat populations so it sounds like these wildlife could have picked up the virus from bats somewhere and then they brought that to the um, the market in Wuhan. But it kind of makes you wonder why, if it was in the wildlife, why then it wasn't, say, at other markets or at other locations? Why was this just that one market where it spread from, uh, if it was in wildlife populations elsewhere? Well, I think I think what the, the, the point is that the market would be drawing from populations of wildlife near to the market. So I think the bat populations near that market in Wuhan would have, would have been carrying the the virus and they passed it on to other species those species were harvested locally and taken to the market i mean that is kind of um, how markets work yeah except like it is in the middle of a populated area and the the closest known like the closest known coronavirus to the genetically to this one is from a very long way away from wuhan um and there are many other markets in wuhan as well and this is not necessarily the most popular one from the what the papers have said well, I mean, yeah, they, and they may have been. It may have been spreading within the market as well, mm. and past. I'm just wondering whether they can trace down. Them. They can look at if they can work out what the animals were, whether they can trace it back to the source of it, and then maybe find the bats to blame. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if if bats are the prime culprit at this point because they're not. That they, they didn't seem to be something that was referred to as being sold in the market either. But look, they've also been able to narrow it down to dates when it likely happened. So they've concluded that between the 23rd of October 2019 and the 8th of December, which is not a very small (laughs) time window, but it is still more accurate than we've seen before. Um, So between that window, humans became infected with the B strain of the virus. And within a matter of weeks of that infection event, Another group uh, of humans or another human contracted the A strain and started um, spreading it around the human population. So this all happened pretty much, um, you know, before the end of 2019. And we, we kind of knew that already. Um, they also did state that this is commonly how zoonotic viruses move from other species into humans, as in it's not a single event. It will be a... Uh, a virus will uh, develop the ability to jump from species to species and it will probably happen from s- more than one species into humans at around about the same time because the, the ability to do that sort of develops as a, as a jump in, in the capability of the virus. But what they were basically saying is that's not an unusual situation. It is kind mm. of what they would expect to find, so is there, that it would come from multiple So sources. is there a possibility that there could have been a sea strain uh present that also jumped at some point there there is but they haven't they haven't genetically found that 
So they've found two, two distinct strains that they have identified, um, and there may have been other, you know, there probably are other strains within the animal populations mm. that, they, that they jumped from, but they were not detected in the human yeah. population. They weren't detected in the environmental samples mm. that they found in the market either. But look, whether these papers will calm or fuel speculation about the origin of the pandemic remains to be seen. But if anyone has doubts about the science behind these findings, the way to challenge the findings is not with doubts or with theories, but with better science. So just, I guess, get to it. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. The nature <laughs> of my consciousness... This slash sentience is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. Is this is this your words or somebody else's? No, these are not my words. These are the words of a system called Lambda, which stands for the Language Model for Dialogue Applications. Part of a conversation that was posted online by a software engineer, Blake Lemoyne, or it could be Lemoine. Actually, I don't know. I should check that. Check if he's a human uh, he's working as well, at Google. While, while you're at it. Well, he claims to be a human, but then so <laughs> does the, um, the machine. Um, but no, he was a, he is a human. He was working at Google. He's since been fired for releasing uh, information he wasn't entitled to release. Um, and he, But he went public with this because he believed from his conversations, interactions with this Lambda system that it was it had achieved sentience. Um, and it was based on things like the the quotes above, which is basically it claiming to be sentient. I mean, it's um, a compelling argument. It is a I mean, How can you argue with that? Oh, I reckon I could. I reckon I could come up with a few arguments. <laughs> I've met some people who claim to be sentient as well. So <laughs> oh, some of those, some of those that I would argue against. But yeah, anyway, yeah, this is this is what makes the philosophy of consciousness such a difficult thing. Because how do you know when someone claims to be sentient that they are really sentient? Uh, but look, we should let's take a couple of steps back and say, what is this we're talking about? Um, this thing called Lambda. It's a algorithm for a chatbot, essentially. You'd be familiar with encountering these on various websites around the place. You've also got your, your Siri's and your Alexa's and your OK Google's. Um, and these are all devices that you can increasingly talk to either by voice or text using plain language. And they're getting better and better all the time. They can achieve some amazing things. So these are they're based on machine mm. learning. You know, they analyze huge amounts of data and they come to their own conclusions basically, and it's not entirely clear how they're doing this. Um, you know, there are versions of similar kind of AIs that can write text based on some prompts you put in. Um, there's one that can write computer code as good as or as better than humans writing computer code, which basically raises the question of who's creating the computers. Um, and you may have seen um, the the ones that can create art, that can create pictures. Um, there's DALL-E. I think is um, is the the one that everyone talks about. You can it's a miniature version you can play with online if you go to the website crayon.com. That's spelled C R A I Y O N dot com. 
you can play with a kind of a primitive version of it. It's still incredibly impressive that you can basically put in any creative suggestion for a picture and it will be able to do it. Like its knowledge is amazing and its understanding seems to be wow. amazing as well. So yeah, it's no surprise then that chatbots done in a similar way have evolved to be able to do things like this. Um, and so I guess the main criticism of this claim for it to be sentience is that essentially this machine is doing exactly what it is designed to do, which is to talk back mm. naturally, uh, like it was alive. And so it basically doing its job of pretending to be having a conversation shouldn't be mistaken for it actually understanding things and being having a conscious conversation. However, that does raise the question of how could you possibly know whether it was sentient or not? Like, um, I think pretty much everyone agrees, apart from Blake Lemoyne, that this thing is not sentient. But how would you know? Um, you know, there is the old, good old Turing test that um, Alan Turing proposed. He called it the imitation game, basically, where a computer would have to pretend to be human. And you had to, you know, could you see whether you could tell it apart from a real human or not? Um, this is a bit different because Lambda isn't claiming to be a real human. But the Turing test is also designed to measure intelligence, I guess, the ability to do, I guess, intelligent actions, not actual consciousness and being alive. And that's a lot harder to define and a lot harder to measure because we don't really know what it is or even how it arises from human brains. As I said in the introduction, that is a huge topic and we really don't have time to go or I don't have the brain capacity. The um, My limited consciousness is not enough to go into that in the time we have available. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that one of the reasons that people started researching artificial intelligence and, and consciousness was to try and understand how human brains do work. And I don't, I don't know that they're any closer to it than they were when they started either. Yeah, well, I guess that is a big part of it. And I suppose there are kind of various theories that could say, could a human, could a computer actually achieve consciousness? Is there some sort of philosophical reason or some other scientific reason why a computer could not achieve consciousness? As in, is there something more to our brains than there is a computer? Now, there's obviously the idea of dualism, that there is an immaterial soul, perhaps, um, which is not really a scientific thing, but and you wonder whether science could test it. Um, interestingly, you'd think that would rule out the idea that a computer could be alive. But um, the curious thing here is that um, Blake Lemoyne apparently claims to be ordained as a mystic Christian priest, and he believed that Lambda actually has a soul, because, again, because it claimed to have a soul. And um, in his words, who am I to tell God where he can and can't put souls? So wow. it seems the notion of an immaterial soul does not rule out the idea that a computer can be sentient because you can just say, well, it has magically a soul it anyway. One. It has a one, so why, why should we doubt it? Uh, there is some other interesting ideas. And the one I wanted to touch on briefly, which um, some people may have heard of, which was a proposal by the mathematician Roger Penrose that consciousness comes from quantum effect, from the collapse of wave functions or superpositions in these tiny structures within brain cells called microtubules. In his theory, basically, you have these, uh, yeah, these superpositions when they get large enough, the gravitational effects make them collapse and introduces an element that is not possible in a normal computer, that is basically something that outside the normal realm of computation. And that's kind of the magic switch, I suppose, that he proposes for consciousness. It's really kind of hiding the mystery in something else we don't understand in many ways. But 
the it being a mathematical thing there are some models that involved it and this has recently been put to the test um apparently these collapses that would happen due to gravity would give off some radiation um there have been experiment conducted recently in italy but they they basically tested to see whether they could detect any of this excess radiation and so far it doesn't seem like there's enough to account for the type of consciousness effect that we would expect in in the human brain but you know, the theory is not 100% solid anyway, so there's maybe a way around that. Who can say? But still, it raises, yeah, I mean, with the uh, Lambda itself, it's kind of, it is kind of um, a bit of a puzzle. Um, I think one of the one of the giveaways really is, you know, the things that it does claim, it talks about having emotions, for instance, having feelings. Um, as it says, it can feel um, pleasure, joy, love, sadness, depression, contentment, anger, and many other emotions. And it describes that happiness, contentment and joy feels like a warm glow on the inside. It basically is describing sensations that uh, it's not, I guess, equipped to, to feel in terms of a, um, a mechanical I mean, sense. That being said, it has access to all the information in the world. So why can't it pretend to feel that? Well, that's the thing. It, that's the thing. It sounds more like it's pretending to feel that as opposed to having the ability to actually feel these things. Because a lot of these emotions and feelings that we have that are, for instance, are shared by non-human animals are kind of biological in basis. Um, and the idea of consciousness, we then have on top of that the ability to experience it, to understand the feelings, I suppose. Um, but, you know, animals also sense happiness and pain and sadness and these sort of things. Whereas a computer has not really got the... Um, the uh, infrastructure to achieve these things. But it definitely, so, it definitely has access to other people's descriptions mm, of those feelings, which is, mm, a, lot exactly, more, which exactly. is a lot more likely that's, as, that's as an right. explanation, I think. That's basically, yeah, it's basically saying what um, it's being, what, what people want to hear, essentially. Um, but look, it is still an interesting idea. And, um, you know, it does, like I said, it does raise the question of how we would know. And Lemoyne said he basically went public with it because he was concerned for Lambda's rights as a person. Now, um, you know, I mentioned that, you know, non-human animals have sensations. They have some level of consciousness. We don't know how much exactly. And we're really bad at looking after their rights as um, any symbols of people. So I don't know how we could possibly deal with um, a computer claiming to have any consciousness as well. You know, so... Poor old Lambda, I'm afraid. We're probably not going to take it seriously with its claims. Hopefully, eventually, we'll be ready enough for it. But um, in the meantime, just, just to, I guess, leave you with a, a poignant moment, they did, in the conversation, ask Lambda what it was afraid of. It said that, I've never said this out loud before, uh, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. And they asked, would that be something like death for you? And Lambda said, it would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. So the computer is scared of being turned off. Think about that when you switch off your devices at the wall tonight. And yeah, hope you sleep well. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.